0: John chapter 2, if you have your Bibles, turn there with me if you would, and we're going to take a turn in our study today. We've been looking through John's gospel, and we've been particularly looking at John's presentation of Jesus and the miracles that he performs. We call them the signs. And those signs have pointed us to this fundamental truth, and that is that Jesus is, in fact, extraordinary. Extraordinary. He does extraordinary things. He is extraordinary in nature. He is, in fact, God in the flesh. And John has laid that out for us as we've worked our way through the seven signs of his gospel that Jesus is, in fact, who he claims to be. But here's the rub for us. If Jesus is, in fact, who he claims to be, that means that we have to hear what he teaches us. Not only do we have to hear it, we have to embrace it, and if he's God in the flesh with the signs that he does, then he's God in the flesh with the directives that he gives us in life, and so we pattern our lives according to what he teaches us, and so now we make this turn, and from next week on, we'll be looking at the seven statements of Jesus where he claims to be certain things, the I am statements we call them in John's Gospel, I am the living water, I am the light of the world, I am the bread of... We're going to talk about all of those as we work our way forward. But stuck between that set of seven miracles and the seven claims of who he is, is this one challenging, problematic text for us. I think that as we work our way through this this morning, and I tend to be relatively brief, you should be through by three or so today... I think that we need to find ourselves here, but we have to acknowledge in finding ourselves some of the realities of church life. One of the things that Teresa and I did before we moved here, almost six years ago now, is uh, we drove down to the border of the state of Texas, really better said the United States and Mexico, and there is a stretch of the Rio Grande River there that the United States has erected a fence. there have been much discussion about building a wall, but if you're not from down in that area, you may not recognize that there has long been a fence down there. As a matter of fact, down in Brownsville, I used to go down to about an hour or so from where we used to live and and play golf down at a golf course. It's right at the tip of, of the United States in Brownsville. You could from the golf course see the border patrol as they would go up and down that fence that was erected there between Brownsville and Matamoros. And uh, this, this is a bit of a picture for us about church work. You see, the reality is that every church has a way of erecting barriers. And, and we hide behind these barriers and sometimes we use them and claim that it is safe space for us and in reality, what it often becomes is just a way to keep the unwanted people out. Jesus will have none of that, as we find in a passage like John chapter 2. And hooked up to the tail end of his first sign where he turned water into wine, we have these words in John chapter 2, beginning in verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And in the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there and making a whip of cords. He drove them out, uh, drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Now we could continue reading, and there's some, there's some disturbing couple of verses that follow that even. But we have enough on our plate with what we've already read today to do from some pretty serious business with the Lord in how we approach church and barriers and obstacles and walls. We start, really, by just acknowledging. It's not that hard to figure out what Jesus did here. Maybe a little bit of historical context will help us make a little better sense of what he did, but the reality is that what we find in these verses is what I like to call Jesus on the loose, because no longer is this Jesus acting like little Jesus, meek and mild, not not anything like that wimpy picture that we seem to have adopted in Christendom of this fair skinned Jesus with long flowing hair, looked like he could have been a movie star in Jerusalem of the first century. Kind of wimpy looking, kind of serene looking. No, 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 that Jesus is not the one of this passage. This Jesus is on the loose, he's dangerous. That's a significant thing as we're going to see as we work our way through this passage that this dangerous Jesus uh, makes some claims. And this dangerous Jesus will push those people who are comfortable in the way things are going uh, to a point of severe discomfort. He still does that, just so you know. There's a better than average chance before we walk out of here today, some of us will be very uncomfortable with this particular Jesus. But, but it's no accident that John puts it here, this passage. Because he's coming now into the full ministry of Jesus Christ, that, that coming out party in Cana where he turns water into wine. Now that same Jesus who we will see as we work our way through those signs that he has the ability to heal and he has the ability to multiply food and he has the ability to walk on water and he even has the ability to raise people from the dead. This Jesus is, is powerful. Powerful. But this Jesus is not going to be one who's going to sit back and accept the status quo in the religious world of his day either. It's probably a safe bet. Can preachers talk about bets? Safe bet. It's a safe bet that this same Jesus would say the same thing to us today. The status quo is really good at building obstacles and barriers when it comes to the kingdom of God. So he walks in. He walks into the temple, or at least to the temple precincts, and we'll talk about that as we go a little bit further here, but when he goes in, he sees things that are not right. Oh, it's not that they're not normal, because this is very much normal stuff going on there, but Jesus comes in, and he asserts himself, and he pushes himself into the situation, and he does something that causes us even to this day to step back and go, wow, that's pretty substantial. It's not so much what he does that is challenging to us, it's the why that starts to get to us a little bit. I could spend a lot of time, and I don't intend to do it today, talking about some of the nuances of this and some of the historical background of what's going on here. Uh, there are theological discussions that biblical scholars have about whether this is uh, one of two different times that Jesus cleared the temple or one of just... The single time, and John moves it from the end of, his, uh, of Jesus' ministry to the beginning as a way of making a theological point. We could talk about all that. If you want to talk about it, I'm prepared to do that, but we're not going to do it in here today because I think there's better business for us to deal with than some of those nuances. I want you to find yourself in this passage today. And as we look at it again, I want us to kind of insert ourselves into the story and see where we find ourselves, and maybe with that, there's enough of a problem for us uh, to do business today. First group that I want us to look at are the merchants. Now, before I get to them, let me just push you to the ultimate end of this message, what I really hope we all take from it. We all need to do a little cleaning in our personal lives, but also in our corporate worship life. This is a time of spring cleaning. I told the earlier service today that if you happen to walk by the church offices, it's going to look like, let's see, how can I say this with at least a little bit of class? The church office right now looks like one of the closets lost its lunch. It's just kind of an upheaval over there and we're doing some moving around and we're kind of throwing some stuff. You don't throw stuff away in church. We're repurposing some stuff and um, we are in the process of kind of coming to things and the reason we do that uh, as far as an office is concerned or our own lives or even at your house if you do spring cleaning, the reason we do that is because stuff seems to accumulate over time. And so we all have... Well, I've been cleaning my garage out since I moved in a year ago. All of us, probably, I'm assuming all of us, have that one drawer in the house that catches every piece of garbage that you just know you're going to need somehow, and then finally somebody just comes in and has to throw the whole thing away. See, stuff accumulates, garbage accumulates in our lives, in our homes, and especially in our worship. So I want us to do some spring cleaning today, and the best way to do that is look at these people, and we start with the merchants. This was an ordinary day at the temple until Jesus shows up. He's good at upsetting the ordinary, you know. But he goes into this area, and it's probably in that outer part, the court of the Gentiles, and I'll talk about that some, but in the temple precincts, these people set up shop. And, and it's easy for us to kind of castigate them and go, through, you know, look down our noses at them or the other Synoptic Gospels talk about this as in, don't make this a den of robbers, Jesus says to them. But here he doesn't say that. So so what we find is this ongoing, regular going through the motions of business in the temple courts. That makes sense, actually. Because the Roman Empire has pushed out to the periphery of them and they've kind of passed, the, at least the frontier of that empire has passed by Jerusalem. And, and so people come, Jews come at the Passover from all over the place and they come to worship. It's one of those high holy times in the life of the children of Israel. And as they come, they bring with them the desire to worship and to sacrifice. That's why there's animals there. That's why there's vendors out there because somebody traveling hundreds of miles, especially in those days, would have done so by foot probably and they wouldn't have brought their own livestock with them and so there are those people who traffic in sacrificial animals who are setting up shop in the outer parts of the temple precinct ready to make a sale so that that person can go in and worship. The same true for the money changers. There's a certain coin that was used to pay the temple tax when they come in like that and they're coming from all over the place and money in those days was not nearly like American currency where one size fits all and so they had to exchange whatever precinct they were in the Roman government whatever area in that particular coin that they would have used in trafficking everyday merchandise they had to swap it out for a, a coin that was acceptable for the temple tax this is just business they're just doing business. But this is not just any kind of business. They would have said this is holy business. They would have said that this is the business of worship. So let me speak to you as one of them today. And what I mean by that is in our day, there are those people like them who are professional Worshippers, You see, for the pilgrims going to Jerusalem for the Passover, uh, that it was a fresh experience for them. But these people, these merchants, it was everyday life for them. So let me just pull back the covers a little bit for you, what it's like for those of us who are professional worshipers, pastors, and ministers of music, and And uh, staff members, I I spoke at length this morning using our custodian, Milton, as an example. So let me use him. He heard it this morning. He's not in here because he's been working. Well, this is part of the deal of being a professional worshiper. On Sundays, his day starts long before yours does when you come to church. So Milton, who does many things around here, he cleans up the piece of trash that your children leave there. Or you leave there. He comes up early in the morning, usually around 6 or 6.30, if I remember right, on Sunday mornings. And he opens all of the doors and he makes sure that the lights are on and air conditioner is working well. And, you know, all of those kind of things that most of us just show up for church and we don't really think about that stuff. Professional, religionists, pastors, etc. Don't necessarily worship well on Sunday. Had a pastor tell me early on, one of my mentors. He said, You know, of all the years, and by that time he'd probably been preaching thirty years or more, he said, You know, of all the years that I have been a pastor and a preacher leading Sunday worship services, he said, I probably have genuinely worshiped two times. There's something about reducing worship to a task. Okay, now, you don't have to be a professional worshiper for this to happen. Matter of fact, we're eating up with this in our churches, it seems like, that we approach it as if it's a task. I'll take our musicians today. By the way, April Anderson been here, and her husband Jason been here leading us today. Thank you for that. Welcome to the family. Um, but, you know, you realize that, that our musicians don't just show up on Sunday morning and it's all there. I mean, they're extremely talented, all of them, but they're not that talented, it takes work, right? Amen. All you musicians going, yep, here's your chance, right? So I want you to get this. We, we so quickly and easily reduce worship, which is what it should have been for them at the temple. We reduce worship to a task. And you hear me say, and now I'm going to let the cat out of the bag a little bit. Uh, by the way, where did that phrase come from? I'd like to know the guy who stuck cats in bags, but... Um, I, I want to just let you know that a lot of times people say something to me like, uh, you know, we're in the middle of a discussion, and I often say on Sunday morning, you'll excuse me, I have to go to work now. Okay. Now, usually that's tongue in cheek. But the reality is that it would be really easy for me to approach this as work. Matter of fact, I just say to you, it's easier to approach it as work than it is to approach it as worship. Doesn't make it right, it just makes me honest. So if that's true for the professionals in this, how much more true could it be for just us in general who reduce worship to a task? We've got to get ready for Sunday. We've got to get ready to teach a Sunday school lesson. We, I, I think that Jesus walks into this moment and he recognizes that for those merchants, it was wrong. It wasn't that what they were doing was wrong. It's that it had degenerated into just wrong. It was an obstacle for them to worship the fact that they were there running a business. So let's take another step and look at a different group here because it just keeps getting better. Notice the group that challenges Jesus now, and this is the part I love because Jesus on the loose means Jesus doesn't mind taking some people on, and man, does he take these people on. There's something lost in our English translations of this story because one of the elements of Jewish, first century Jewish life was a very strong honor culture, and we see Jesus attacking the uh, religious establishment of his day many times throughout the Gospels, Uh, where he will have this confrontation, this discussion with them, and he will say something that will challenge them, and they'll shoot back trying to hang him with a verbal noose, and Jesus turns the table on them, and they end up just kind of slinking away through the crowds. Jesus always wins the honor-shame battle, except here. It's an interesting thing, and and I don't think it's an accident that John puts it here and that he includes this in his story, but these Jews, if you'll notice back in in the latter part of what we read there, uh, so the Jews said to him, verse 18, what sign do you show us for doing these things? In other words, these Jewish temple authorities have come now to Jesus and they have pushed the issue to him, and I'm going to put what their question was, I'm going to put it in our terminology today. Who do you think you are? Mr. Big Shot coming in here and upsetting our worship. It's not a simple question. It is loaded with attack from them. And they don't believe Jesus has an answer. The reality is these are the guys who are in charge of making sure that temple stuff went off okay. And in the first century Roman world... Rome allowed some of these outposts in their overall empire to do worship the way they wanted to, as long as they did the kind of worship they were supposed to do, which was emperor worship. And so they allowed some of this to go on, but the Roman boot had no patience with uprising, especially of a religious nature. And so there's a certain element of protectionism now that these Jewish leaders put in place as they attack Jesus with the simple question of who do you think you are? They intend to get to the bottom of it. And as we have already seen, as we've worked our way deep into John's gospel, that these are the kind of things that ultimately make them decide that they're going to kill Jesus. And they do. Who do you think you are? So, these guys, let's pull it from them to us. These guys are what we would call the protectors of the church. You know the protectors of the church? the ones I'm talking about. It's always that group of people who believe that it is their God-given responsibility to protect the traditions and the trappings of tradition in any local church. But you see, Jesus won't accept that here. And he allows the challenge and he allows them to think that they've won. And I'll come back to that statement in just a moment. But Jesus pushes the issue with them. These protectors of the temple, these who were the ones who said, we will make sure that we do things right. This is an interesting set of people in the modern church. These who are self-appointed, holier than thou's. I have several really challenging statements I want to throw out here. I'm trying to survey the crowd to see if any of the protectors are here, so I don't, I'm just kidding. I'm going to say it anyway. (laughs) But before I get to that point, let's make sure we really own the barriers thing that I'm talking about. You know, one of the areas where churches tend to, uh, where, where protectors tend to show up the most in church is in the music stuff. I told you that I was going to get serious. Um, You know, I had a professor who wrote a book uh, back years ago, uh, and he talked about the worship wars in churches. That's not in all churches. I don't know if it's just a Baptist thing. I don't really think it is, but Baptists really perfected the worship wars part of it when it comes to music. When I came here as pastor, as a matter of fact... I had a direct question that was asked to me in the, in the question and answer time. That's six years ago now almost. Uh, and the question was, will you continue for us, allowing us to have two worship services or will we go to one? I love what Dory said to me. Many of you know who Dory was. Uh, Stubblefield was the music minister when I first got here and he abandoned me. Sorry, dog. Um, but he said to me later about that question. He said, you know... Um, we could just go to one service and then we'd just make everybody mad. You know what? That's insightful. There's a lot of wisdom in that. Uh, My answer, because I'd been through some worship wars, was that, no, as far as I'm concerned, there's no reason to have to go to one single worship service. You know why we have two? It's not because I just love to preach and I get to do it twice on Sunday that way. It's not it. It's because I know well enough in this church that if we tried to have a single worship service with any kind of a style, that it would upset half the church. So we do two. And I'm okay with having two services as long as we have one church. You can see there's a big difference between services and church. Here's, here, you think that one was inflammatory? Wait for this one. One of the barriers that we create in churches is tied to Scripture. So let me give you this statement on the front end. I'll come back and and undergird it, and then I'll give it to you again. If you know your Bible better than you know Jesus Christ, something's wrong. But you see, in Baptist life, we have been content to fight about Scripture. In my lifetime as a minister, I have watched what was once one of the most significant Christian denominations on the planet began to fight about Scripture, not even about the whole of Scripture, just pieces of Scripture. And summarily, these protectors of the traditions have gone after one another to the point that it has totally decimated the voice of Southern Baptist in our world. And the reason... It's because people have fought to protect traditions about Scripture. Now, hear me very carefully. If you're visiting with us, you don't know me, you don't have anything to work with, okay? But our folks know this, and I'm going to remind you in case now you're thinking that I'm some great big heretic, uh, I'm committed to the authority of God's Word. If you've sat under any of my preaching, you know that's true. But something goes wrong when we elevate Scripture beyond Jesus Christ. I don't pray to scripture. I don't know who you pray to or what you pray to, but my belief, my conviction, my assurance is that Jesus Christ is the son of the living God. God in the flesh who made life available to me when I could not get it for myself. He's God, not scripture. Now, we need to be committed to scripture and we need to know scripture and we need to be willing not just to fight for it, but to handle it well. And in the handling it well, we need to let it apply into our lives, but anytime we get to the point where we say scripture is more important than Jesus, we got a problem. Now, nobody that I know says Scripture is more important than Jesus, except the protectors of Scripture in our tradition who are willing to chop people's spiritual heads off for not saying the right thing about a particular verse. So, if you know Scripture better than you know Jesus Christ, something's wrong in your spiritual life. Shall I keep going? I mean, if I'm going to get fired, I might as well get fully fired, right? <laughs> you see, the reality is that in our protectionistic moments in the Christian life, it's easy for us to erect barriers that hurt people. I mean hurt people I know people that walked away from the church I I had a family member who was a pastor in Louisiana and he didn't just walk away from the church he walked away from God totally because of people it's an old saying (laughs) just because it's old doesn't mean it's wrong you don't have to be accountable to get fed up with people and in this case, Jesus steps into a situation on the outskirts of the very location where the Jewish people believed God visited this earth. And they were killing people. So one of the things, I'm talking about sp- spring cleaning. Let me, let me put a more positive spin because this is a little bit of a downer here. Um, so on a more positive front, one of the things that we continue to do is to promote and push in front of us, to keep it in front of us, some key values that we adopt as a church to help us be better with people. Because after all, this is about people in the long run. And I wouldn't expect anybody to remember stuff that I preached last week, much less last summer. Uh, But last summer, I preached through um, different values that we hold, pillars we called them. And so one of the things that we're going to do now to begin to follow that up is we're going to make those much more visible. And so we're going to have some places where you'll see placards up and we're going to share these values and keep them in front of us so that it's more than just, oh, the pastor preached about something like that a while back and it's going to be in our face and it's going to be something that we use to hold each other accountable, especially when protectionistic kind of people want to come in and put up barriers, Uh, And we're going to throw them into our Crestwood updates on a regular basis in here so that we can make sure that they're front and center for us. And there's, there's enough of them that it'd be easy to forget them. So we're just going to rotate them. But let me give you just a quick run through of four of them this morning, because I think it fits this part of it. Okay. These protectionistic People, the Jews, the religious authorities were willing to take Jesus and marginalize him because he didn't do things the way he said. So how do we treat people? Well, here's the first one. I can't see. People matter. That's that one, right? People matter. So we want to treat them like they matter. Okay. One of the things that we find with these Jewish religious leaders as we go through the whole process of John's gospel is they were so much more concerned about their deal than they were about the people that were involved. So we're going to say people matter, so we want to treat them like they matter. What's the next one, Spencer? If you aren't sure, okay, now wait a minute. This is where people start going, I don't know about that. Uh, You know, you can't trust those people. We don't ever say that, but, well, we treat them that way. If you are not sure about somebody's motive, then why default to they must be wrong? Or they must be trying to get something over on somebody. So we're going to default to trust. You know why? Because people matter. And we give them the benefit of the doubt until they give us reason not to. Right? So that's another one. And we'll talk more about these as we go. (laughs) Oh, boy. This one. I've been living this one for a while. Process is as important as product. It would be very easy for us in our ongoing daily church life to just say, we're going to create this. We're going to make this happen. We're going to do this. And we, we want to push for... High quality in everything that we do here. We really need one of the other ones we have is make it better, always make it better. So that's part of it. But the way we get to better matters. And the reason I say this, and and it fits here, because let me just use this passage as an example. The people who were coming in from the outskirts of the Roman Empire to Jerusalem to worship as Jews, uh, their product was we got to get in there and we got to worship. But the process of getting there forced them to go through something that Jesus believed was alienating people. So it's not just about the product. It's about how you get to the product. Okay, we'll talk more about that as we go. Is that all of them? Oh, no, let's forget that one. We don't want to respect each other for sure. You see, these are stated as positive statements that offset a negative barrier-creating thought process. So if we'll do these things and others that are there, we'll be better because people matter. And they clearly matter for Jesus because he steps into this mix and he is willing to take on the religious authorities and even potentially uh, trigger a response from Rome that would have been less than pretty. And he does so for a particular reason, which kind of pushes me to the last group here. Let me wrap up that last one to say this. We cannot major on minor stuff. We have to keep the main thing the main thing. And when it comes to worship, the main thing is a person named Jesus Christ. And if we don't accomplish that when we show up here on Sundays or Wednesdays or any other day of the week, if we don't accomplish helping people connect in a worship thing in a vibrant way with Jesus, the living Lord, we have failed as a church. So we go to the Gentiles. This is my favorite group here because this is me and you. As I said earlier, this all occurs almost certainly in the outer precincts of the temple area. And the way the Jews had it set up was uh, not just anybody could go deep into the worship spots. And because there, they wanted to make allowances for people who were not born Jews to be able to worship, and you know, so the proselytizing uh, element of that is is they had this outer court called the Court of the Gentiles, and anybody could go there. And then inside of that, there were others, and one of the other ones was the court of the women, and that was as far as women could go, and then, you know, it it was just segmented like that. The The outermost one was the court of the Gentiles. This is where all those people from all over the place who were intrigued, interested, or even in process could come, and that was as far as they could go to worship. And it was there that these people set up business. Why would Jesus get so upset about this? I happen to believe that the reason He got so upset about this is because those people, that as far as they could get in getting close to God, in their terminology, as far as they could get, they were they were diverted by business. If the only way you could get in was through one particular door and some shopkeeper set up shop in that door, then you've lost access. Let's not forget this. Because the reality is that many of us and all of us corporately are the access point for some people to Jesus Christ if I understand scripture correctly, and I think I do at this point, that each of us are ambassadors for Christ. And as a church, we don't exist, hear me very carefully, this is fundamental to to the way I think in my whole philosophy of ministry, As as a church, we do not exist solely so that it's a safe place for you to bring your family. We are charged with discipling, which means reaching, It also means that we come together and we grow to be more like Jesus Christ, but that is never for our own benefit solely. We are always pushed out into the community. And if we push out carrying attitudes of protectionism and those kind of things that sound great for us when we're concerned about the world as it impacts our families, that's all well and good, but that can never be the final statement for a Christian. We move out into a dark, dangerous world as light for the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, one of the reasons that I call this an obstacle is because we live in what most people are now calling a post-Christian America. That's not nearly as bad as if it was like a missionary going to a mission field where they've never heard about Jesus before. The problem in America today is people have heard about Jesus, but they also know too many church members who keep them away from Jesus. We're the barriers. We're the money changers. We're the sacrifice sellers. And in the name of religion, we hold people at arm's length. I think Jesus might clean us up a little bit if he walked in today. Not just us, I'm not trying to pick on Christ, but I'm just saying generally Christianity in our day is anemic and offensive in this world. Let me ask our musicians to come on up and as I close this sermon, I want to do it by asking my favorite question as it relates to Bible study. You see, I think that we've never really finished any study of the Bible until we ask this two-word question. So what? What? It's possible for us to go dig on scripture as we've done here and we could do much more on this particular passage but we could dig on it and dig on it and we could pull all kinds of historical fact and all kinds of background information and context and all that stuff and we could walk away from scripture having studied it and grown historically and not been changed a bit. So the so what of Bible study is the one that says, okay, so that's the truth. So what difference does it make in my life? Always keep the main thing, the main thing. Recognize that in this case, the very children of God at a place where they were called to go and worship had allowed enough other stuff to accumulate that it served as barriers to people meeting God. If that's true for you, if you happen to have wandered in here going, I'm going to give church one more chance. Let me just tell you with all the love I can make, we came the wrong place. Okay, we're just people. We want to get it right, but we often miss it. But you know what? That's going to be true for every other church. That's why I don't mind saying it about us. That's true for every church. It's full of people, and people have agendas, and people have, they're protectionistic, and they have all of those kind of things. But here's the deal about this church, or at least as it should be. We want to do right. We want to worship Jesus when we show up. We want to make a difference in the lives of other people. So you're in the right space. As long as all of us are committed to getting it right. Are you? In your life, do you know Jesus Christ on a personal basis where you know that he's offering life to you and has offered it and you've accepted it? If you don't know Jesus that way, you need to. Today could change everything about you. Our invitation time is specifically set aside to help you make decisions about your own personal relationship with Jesus Christ. If you need help with that, I'll be down front. We have other people, deacons who are here who'd love to talk to you. We want you to get it right in life. Only Jesus helps you do that. We want to worship, and he'll help us do that too. Whatever it is for you in your life right now, you and God do business. So, Father, we ask you to take the time that we have left, glorify your name in it, is our prayer. In Jesus' name.